0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: Many of you know that uh, we've been looking at this particular discourse or talk or collection really of teachings that the Buddha gave way back when, 2,500 years ago or so. And it's called the Satipatthana Sutta. Sutta just means discourse. So related to the word sutra, the thread that they use to sew up wounds. And so these talks are like a thread sort of connecting different teachings, each teaching sort of referring to other teachings, So this particular collection of teachings on the ways of establishing mindfulness or the four foundations of mindfulness, simplest way is the ways of being mindful of the body and mind. And the Buddha, in this uh, collection of teachings, he talks about 13 different meditations. And to be mindful of these 13 different things that we've been talking about. And the first collection actually includes six, so almost half of the ones in this discourse, and these six all have to do with being mindful of the body. And here the body also includes the other senses, so not just the tactile experience like feeling sensation, but also the seeing, the hearing, the smelling, the tasting as well, mindfulness of body. And so we've talked in the last few weeks, so there are six meditations on the body. We talked about mindfulness of the breath. One of the classic Buddhist meditations and also used in other traditions. And then mindfulness of the postures and mindfulness of activities. That's the second and third. These are really great practices for daily life. If we're a sincere practitioner, then no matter what we're doing in life, where we are, it's not that hard for us to sustain an awareness that when we're sitting, there's an awareness. Oh of sitting. Like even now, you you could be hearing the talk and sort of, uh, digesting it, you know, in the ways that we do when we hear things. And in moments, interspersed in moments, there's, there could be a very clear awareness sitting like this. That there is a body sitting and the experience is like this. We don't need to be disconnected from the body in the midst of daily life activity. I mean, I know we mostly are. You know, we get lost in our daily life activity, and we might be brushing our teeth, but there could be no awareness of the physicality of brushing our teeth or washing the dishes or walking from here to there or, you know, any of the other many activities that the body is involved in or postures, lying down, walking, standing, sitting, reaching. So the Buddha invites us to, in a refined way, especially like when we're doing a formal sitting practice, to use a more refined body object like the breath. One of the great advantages to train with the breath is as the body and mind becomes more relaxed, the breath becomes more refined. You probably have noticed this. And then the attention, in order to know that very subtle, refined breath, the attention has to be equally refined. It's like, you know, if there's an elephant walking through the woods, we don't need a very refined attention to hear it. But if it's a little mouse creeping 15 feet away, you have to be really quiet to be able to hear that. And so, as we're sitting with the breath, one of the reasons it's such a useful sitting meditation technique is, you know, after a while of practice, The mind learns how to become tranquil. And so the breath, you know, the body and the mind, they mirror one another. So the body gets really relaxed. The breathing process becomes more subtle. And so in order to maintain that clear awareness of the breathing process, the attention, the energy of attention, the alertness has to really get strong, which is what we need. Because without that, we fall asleep. Because the tranquility gets strong, but if the alertness isn't, if the energy of alertness isn't increasing as the tranquility deepens, people just fall asleep or fall into a trance state. So one of the most challenging obstacles for people who've been meditating for a while is they go unconscious or they fall into a trance state or they literally fall over and fall asleep. So to avoid that, we have to be increasing the sensitivity, the alertness, the interest of the mind as the tranquility is deepening. They have to be in balance in that way. So we have the breath, we have mindfulness of postures, and then mindfulness of physical activities. Now the last three of these body meditations, um, I kind of covered some of them tonight. So there's the, the fourth one is the 31 body parts. And in different places of the Buddhist talks, sometimes it's 36 parts, sometimes 33, sometimes 31. Of course, it's not that important how many parts. You know, it just depends on how good of a student you were in high school biology when you do this. Because the point isn't to get every single part. The point is to transform our understanding of the body. See, the way... We normally live, the view we have of the body in our normal conscious, uh normal uh, interactions and inner dialogue, is as a one thing. Like the same thing with our car. You know, I think about my Kia Rondo out there in the parking lot. I don't think carburetor, front seat, passenger seat, driver's seat, seat belt, steering wheel, alternator pistons, you know, we don't think about it like that, because we've got this very convenient convention, C-A-R, and that concept, right, that word and concept, holds it all together, so I don't have to, my my mind, my cog you know, the cognitive process doesn't have to get involved with all the little, like how many screws are there, how many belts, how many this, how many that's, I don't even have to go there. And that's the same thing with the body. We've got this really nice convention, this verbal convention. We say, my body, or your body, and then it represents... But the thing is, it's, it supports delusion, because we begin to think of the body as an entity, but it's not really this entity, it's a collection of parts. And when it when it's held together, you know, in a nice way, it's collected together in a bag of skin. Then it's much easier to feel to take it very personally, you know, like it's my body that belongs to me. It's myself. Right? We have one of those three views of our body, and it changes moment to moment. Like this is my body, in a sense of like uh, I own this. It's mine, or this body is me. You know, it's synonymous with me. I am the body. The body is me. Or whatever. You know, I'm inside the body. Or the body's inside me. (laughs) But we have some personal, you know, the body has some kind of personal meaning to us. And that's relatively easy when it's all wrapped up in the skin. Because it's just easier to grasp, to own. So the Buddha invites us, and I, just like, you know, how four year olds or kids around that age, they like to, you know, see a bunch of buttons and categorize them, you know, big buttons, small buttons, blue buttons, red buttons, you know, buttons with three holes, buttons with one hole. So we can be, you know, spiritual aspirants doing that kind of deconstruction or that kind of organizing. Okay, what do we have here? And if you do this regularly, it's not like you have to do it forever, but if you do it for a period of time with real enthusiasm, like have some fun with it, don't make it a grim task. Because it's easy for the mind to make it morbid. But why is it morbid? In this chapter, um, some of you know where some people are at least are reading along with these talks that I'm giving Joseph Goldstein's recent book, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. It's a great book. And it's his comments on this sutta, or discourse that the Buddha gave on mindfulness. The whole book is on that. And in this chapter, chapter 10, Joseph talks about um, Mahagosananda, a famous Cambodian monk. Um, And uh, he was once visiting... IMS, uh, Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, a place where I've done a lot of practice and other people here in the community have gone. Really nice, uh, large retreat center. And during one of the three-month retreats there, he was doing a meditation, a guided meditation, on the eating process. And he just, using a little bit like we did, but now just specifically visualizing that whole process of seeing the food, you know, imagine smelling the food, imagine lifting the food, imagine placing it in your mouth, chewing it, and visualizing the whole process, like what does it look like, what does it taste like, the swallowing, you know, the chewing and mixing the saliva, grinding it, and then the swallowing, the sliding, you know, the different uh, juices in the stomach, digestive juices, that breaking down, you know, the stomach, Forget it, I'm not a doctor, so. but somehow it moves around. It's like a little bit of a churning machine, you know, further helping to break things down, uh, mixing up the, the different liquids that help to break things down. And then some of that, of course, being absorbed, water being extracted, and eventually, you know, coming out as excrement. And uh, just walking everybody through this, and you know, if we're a scientist or a doctor, you know, there might be this amazing state of wonder about how efficient and intelligent the system is, and you know, and it evolved probably over millions and millions of years, and it's like uh, a cumulative—it's uh, the result of cumul uh, of a cumulative sort of trial and error through nature. You know, this is like nature's refinement now arrives as our digestive system. But a lot of people, you know, it's disgusting. Like, we don't want to know that about our eating. Like, we don't want to know what happens to the cake after we put it in our mouth. And, uh, you know, have you noticed that when you go to people's bathrooms, you know, a pretty large percent of us, have magazines and books nearby, so we don't really have to be there <laughs> when we're doing our business. And so somebody at the, at the end of this um, asked him, you know, why are you so averse to the body? You know, because but it's there's nothing averse about this. There's nothing averse about dividing the body up into parts or about becoming more clear because it's this way of reflecting that then transforms the superficiality of whatever view we have about the body. So it's really a way to take some medicine that will correct a particular ailment. The ailment is having a very superficial, idealistic, and even romantic view of the body. And you can use this, you know, if you're dealing with a lot of sexual attraction. Again, not to be morbid and not to be aversive. It's not about being aversive. It's about correcting the one-sided view that we can have about bodies. Because sometimes, you know, we are attracted to bodies in a way that's not so helpful in our lives. It can lead to actually a lot of harm. Like, for example, if we're in a committed relationship, and then all of a sudden we're really attracted to somebody and not the person (laughs) we're in a relationship with. And then just to realize, well, there is the skin, and then there's everything that's inside of it. And just, you know, just like, so what's the enchantment about? So you can pop these bubbles, because a lot of it, you know, um, I've read some articles about, you know, they've really studied carefully that whole world of sexual attraction and what people look at. Or, and for men, you know, it might be I guess, I, I don't know how, uh, solid this, uh, research is, but men, it's more visual, and, uh, for women, it, there are other attributes, I'm not quite sure, uh, if it's more like, uh, um, yeah, anyway, I'm gonna... <laughs> and it makes sense that I wouldn't venture to guess.
2: <laughs>
1: but it's just very interesting to, To begin to see how the mind is wired, it's so impersonal. Once you get, once you start to see that, and you just see what your mind does with experience, and you know, sexual attraction is just one thing. Like what makes us afraid is another thing. Just to see the wiring or the what we say, the conditioning of our minds makes it seem so impersonal. Not seeing it clearly means it's going to feel very personal. And if it feels personal, we're going to act on it as if it's the truth. Like, I really do want to be with this person. I need to be with this person. But if we have this more spacious, clear, dispassionate understanding of what's the forces that are at play, well, it just gives us a lot more space for choice. Like how we're going to handle different situations. How to be skillful let alone that it allows the mind to stay relaxed, which supports skill in so many ways. You know, when we're not relaxed, the mind's not steady. When the mind's not steady, it's not seeing things clearly. And when the mind's not seeing things clearly, how can it make skillful choices? You know, it's distorted by its instability, its lack of steadiness. So steadiness is really important. So that's the fourth one. And you could, you know, track down if you want, let me know if you can't find it, but it's pretty easy to find uh, on the internet uh, descriptions of this 31 Body Parts meditation that the Buddha gave. It's quite common in uh, Theravada Buddhism, the Buddhism that we practice here that comes out of places like Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka, sort of southern Buddhism And then the other we touched on briefly in the guided said the four elements meditation. This is the fifth one. So we have breath, mindfulness of postures, mindfulness of physical activities. And here, you know, we're, this is where we include the seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, right? So it's like whatever the five physical senses are doing, that's the activity of the moment. And that's what we're paying attention to. And then mindfulness of the 31 body parts or however number, but it's the deconstruction of the body into groupings, into parts, and just developing that dispassionate, oh yeah, this body's made up of parts and it's like this. And then the next one is the four elements meditation. And uh, <clears throat> back in the day of the Buddha, you know, their sort of science was that things are made up of four elements. So they described it in terms of heat or temperature. They use the word fire. And earth, which is the qualities of hardness, softness, lightness, heaviness, smoothness, roughness. So the earthy, more tangible qualities, all those are under the category earth. So we have temperature or fire. We have the earthy qualities. And then we have the air qualities, which are the sense of like being held or being supported or even pressure and movement. That's air. So that's an actual, there's a physical experience that can be known or sensations that can be known. I mean, when I do this with my hand, I move it, right? There's all kinds of different sensations. If I was really, really, my attention was really, really refined, even the hand touching the air has a little hardness in it and a little softness in it and a little coolness in it. But the movement itself is its own experience. And we call that air. And then the last is water. And water is often described as a a cohesiveness of physicality. So like when we feel our body right now, we can pick out the different, distinct, diverse sensations. But there's a sense that they're all here together. right? The cohesiveness of all the different sensations. And that's called the water element. Fluidity and cohesiveness are the qualities of water. So this is, in ancient times, in India at least, this is how they could categorize the different sensations. Now you probably noticed after we did the body scan, for several minutes we were just mindful of the whole body, right? And not having a vocabulary, it's just sort of like, oh yeah, this is my body. So, those of you, you know, who have a particular expertise, whether it's playing the violin, or cooking, or writing, or sewing clothes, or being a scientist, you know, and you study mushrooms or something like that. So whatever your particular expertise is, remember how useful it is to have a very specific language, because it helps you organize your perceptions, your direct experience, right? Like, you need names for all the mushrooms. It helps you remember and categorize and identify the different mushrooms. Or, you know, if you're a musician, you, you do, there's so many words that are Greek to the rest of us, but they're really helpful. You know, we may not notice the difference between pitch and tone and timber, and <laughs> you can help me out here, Peter. <laughs> but there are a lot of words. But... For a musician, somebody with a trained ear, they know all these things, and so, when we are using the four elements meditation, whether you use the traditional formulation or not, the fact is it's very useful to have a set of vocabulary so as you're there, because remember on this very in this very refined way, and the four elements meditation requires uh, very steady concentrated mind, right? Because it's not easy for the mind to feel the body, the, to notice the sensations as sensations. Where much the mind is much more used to hanging out in its thought, oh yeah, my body's like this. But that thought, my body feels like this now, is not the same thing as feeling hardness or softness or roughness or smoothness or heat or coolness or whatever you're feeling moment to moment. And each of these sensations You know, of hardness, softness, smoothness, lifting, moving. They're just little flashes. They'd last for a moment, and then there's another. And there's many of these different sensations coming and going, different qualities, quite diverse. So it's nice to have a vocabulary so the mind can absorb and comprehend the diversity in the same way that any expert in their field would be able to comprehend what's going on because their mind knows how to organize the experience. So this is important because a lot of people think that mindfulness is anti-concept, you know, like concepts are a problem. No, concepts aren't a problem. Concepts can be quite useful. The problem is mindless thinking, you know, just like thinking that leads to more thinking that leads to more thinking that's not really connected to the here and now. Like, I could be fantasizing about being on a beach in Mexico, and it doesn't matter if I'm driving home or at a business meeting or, right? i just disconnected. You know, I'm lost in the content. It's as if I've created a movie. And we're doing just the opposite. And we can even be sitting in meditation, breathing in, breathing out, and, but what we're doing is we're basically lost in a movie. Okay, now I'm breathing in. Now I'm breathing out. So that's the movie. The movie is Mark is sitting and watching his breath come in and watching his breath go out. But we're not actually, the sensitivity of sensation is not really comprehending the experience of breathing in and breathing out. It's in the level of I'm here doing my breath meditation. And it's going pretty well today. Or it's not going very well today. And it will be over in a few minutes. And then I'll do this. You know, it's like we're playing a movie about what we're doing. And this is where we exist most of the time. In the movie. This is what we call relative reality. Relative reality means that we're mostly in the movie of our life. And then mindfulness takes us... It's like we're transfixed by the story our mind is telling us about what we're doing. That's like being in the movie theater and you're really engrossed in the content of the movie. And then mindfulness is when you realize, you know, there's a movie theater here and there's that smell of popcorn over there and somebody's slurping their cherry Coke over here and, you know, you see the light the dust particles reflecting the light of the film, and you realize, you know, that's just a silver screen, and light and color flashing, and there's nobody being shot or murdered, or whatever else is going on in the movie, or whatever else you're telling yourself. So mindfulness is, is really getting interested in, the, in things as they actually are, not being spellbound by the inner dialogue, or the movie, or the story that we're telling ourselves about what's happening. Just like, you know, being in the moment means letting go of the story. So there's a a real sense of not knowing. So, for example, if you're doing the Four Elements Meditation, and you're aware of hardness, and softness, and smoothness, and roughness, and heat, and coolness, and movements, and the sense of being held, and sense of cohesion and fluidity in the experience of sensation, then if you're really there in that experience, there is no room in your mind to say, I'm doing the Four Elements Meditation. So there is a not knowing that you're doing the Four Elements Meditation when you're doing it. In the same way, when you're mountain biking down a steep hill and you're 100% into doing it, you're not aware... That you're biking down a mountainside. It's like the mind is on the pre-conceptual level. If there are concepts, they're far off into the periphery because the mind is totally in the moment of sensation and seeing and hearing and all the, and the choices of turning, you're not even the one who's making the choices. If you're at that level of like, should I turn this way or should I break or you're not really at your peak in terms of these kinds of intense activities, right? Because that intercession of being the one who's got to choose really gets in the way of the efficiency of the activity. You have to let go of being in control in order to be really efficient and really effective and functional. And this is not just true when you're mountain biking down a a hillside. This is true just in terms of having relationships and working a job and taking care of our body and you know, doing whatever we do in life. So the four elements of meditation is a way to, two things, break apart this sense of the body as me or mine or who I am, and training the mind how to drop the story in order to... Realize, experiencing without an overlay, without the conceptual overlay, or at least with the conceptual overlay falling more into the background. And uh, the four elements meditation is one way to do that. So then there's the last one which I we didn't do uh, tonight, but I'll just describe, and it makes I think it makes a lot of sense too. Although it's even easier for this one to seem really morbid, and it's often called the corpse meditation or the meditation on decay. And again, it's it's designed to break the spell. I mean, even though we all intellectually know that everybody is going to die, and it's just, you know, if there's birth, there's death, we all know that, that it doesn't occur to us that this body is going to fall apart. And so... What happens if we live a life where we're not forgetting that? You know, the law of entropy. Whatever has come into form will dissolve and fall apart. That's just the law of nature. It's not It's not like personal that, that that happens. And it's just so interesting how frightened we are naturally of, you know, stumbling upon a squirrel full of maggots, you know, that's been hit by a car and... Two weeks later, we just happened to be there on the curb, and we see it. And, you know, you remember probably the first time as a child that you stumbled upon a dead animal that had been dead for a while. It could, can make a... like you could have nightmares, actually. Kids have nightmares after seeing that. There's something very um, maybe archetypal about that image. And what it really is pointing out is that we have this conditioned belief that it's not going to happen to this body. Well, basically, it's not going to happen to me. But because we're identified with this body, you know, we we think what well, can't happen to this body. I'm 55 now, and, uh, you know, it's just like, I have to, I, it's, it's always surprising, like when I look in the mirror, or I remember that I'm 55, because my mind... You know, it doesn't seem 55. And it's not. The mind isn't 55. But, it's, but whatever the mind is, it's inhabiting a 55-year-old body. And someday, you know, if I don't die, it will inhabit an 85-year-old body. You know, or whatever the age is when this body dies. And the Buddha suggests it's quite useful to incorporate, to bring that fact in the fact of decay, that this is the inevitable result. Like the last line in this instruction, one applies it to this very body, this body too, such is its nature, such is its future, such its unavoidable fate. And so what you do with this meditation, you just sit in a calm way, either in your formal meditation posture or you could sit anywhere, to do this contemplation. Well, you can even do it in your, on the bus and you can do it with your body and you can do it with other bodies too. And you just remember that at some point, this lifespan for this body will end. That is true. That I know. No questions about that. And then when it ends, and some of you maybe have had the good fortune to be around your pet or your loved one, a parent that died, and you know exactly what happens in that process of being alive to being dead. And it's an amazing thing to be around, because it's shocking to see something that was alive not be alive anymore, because it shocks this uh, superficial sense in the mind or conditioned sense of the mind that it's not really going to happen. And it really brings out a sense of humility because the one thing we know when we're around that experience is we we don't know what it is really. I mean, on one level we, we understand it physically, like you know, the plumbing starts stops working, the nervous system stops doing what it does. So we understand that level, but we don't really get how there was something animating this body, which we sometimes call the mind, and then there's nothing animating the body. And then, of course, just to bring the point home, we can use our imagination or we can actually observe um, corpses. You know, now there's more of a movement. We did this with my mother and to some degree with my father when they died. I kept the body around and we just did the wake right there um, with my mom at home because she was at home when she died. And we kept her there for a little bit more than 24 hours and... Uh, and we cleaned her and dressed her. And uh, then the family could, the next day, the family could gather around. And We just hung out with her body. And, of course, you see immediately in the first hours, you know, the body gets quite cold. And uh, color changes and the stiffness. And then that's just like uh, so informative to just see, oh, yeah, this is what happens to bodies. It's a mistake. And there's nothing like... Why we call this bad is very interesting, or scary. There's nothing scary, and it's neither good nor bad, it's just what happens. So it's really good to notice how much baggage, how much conditioning the mind has around these experiences. And of course, if we didn't uh, burn the body or put it in the ground or something, or even when we do put it in the ground, there's this decomposition or decay just continues, naturally. You know, and life feeds on life. And so the bugs and worms, and if it was left out, you know, the creatures would start to feed on the body, just like they do on roadkill. You know, the crows would come, and all the eagles now come, <laughs> feed off of the roadkill. I don't know if you've seen those. And uh little critters and big critters and worms. And, you know, after a while, there's not much left but bones, and even those eventually, after a long time, get bleached and start to fall apart. I remember that in uh, uh, being raised as a Catholic. So of you, I'm sure, were raised as a Catholic during Lent. Remember, there was a line about dust to dust. Is that how it goes? Anybody remember that line? To Say it again. I don't
2: I, dust to dust,
1: ashes to ashes. Yeah. But in one way or another, they captured... That idea, you know, that, that, the mortality and bringing it in, you know, for all the, you know, issues with Catholicism that different people have, you know, having a big crucifix, or other Christian churches too, having a big crucifix, somebody dying, is sort of, uh, interesting symbology, isn't it? And, uh, it's useful to remember there is death, there is decay. And that's really what the sixth Meditation on the body is about, like, this will happen to this body. There's no way around that. So let's live our life not in denial, but just incorporating that reality. This body is subject to birth and death. They kind of go together. You don't get one without the other, even with technology. And death has a particular trajectory, you know. Decay, it's all... And we can not be afraid of that. We can practice seeing it, noticing it, and not being afraid of it. And it's liberating, surprisingly. And it depersonalizes the body. And it's much easier to relate to the body as nature instead of me or mine. And that, that's the direction the practice takes us. So I'll leave it here. We have about 15 minutes. I'm imagining that uh, either you have questions about some of these six body meditations that I've talked about tonight, or you have experiences that seem relevant to some of the things I've said that might be useful to share with the group. So what comes to mind? <laughs> I that, you? No, but you can. Okay. Anne asked if I put her back together. I
2: was wondering if you could do one for all of us to get back together, just a quick one. That really disturbs me a little. Because I feel like I'm going to wander. Hmm? I feel like I'm going to wander. like am not back in my skin.
1: Yeah, but but that yucky, funny feeling is actually really nice to look at. Because we, we. it's fine to put yourself back together. There's nothing wrong with that. And sometimes when I do this meditation, we do put the body back together. But remember that The body always will be this collection of parts in the same way that a car is a collection of parts. So the, my body as a entity is just a concept. Whether we, uh, put our body back together or not, it remains what it is. But I don't agree. I mean, I think,
2: I think that the body, well, I think that the imagination is this, is my intent. And that you can travel with your mind intent, with your energy, places, and that that is part of high end meditation. And that if you uh, travel somewhere and you don't have a return, there could be consequences. I feel as though um, it's not just a concept. Like if you live in your body, it's not a concept. It's a. It's a. It's a. It's not a concept. So. I don't know, I, I i put myself back together, but I'm worried that I forgot something, but i worry that other people will be, like, traveling. And they'll have, like, and, and shame in shaman places, in religions, where people walk death with people or go down passageways, they always have to have rituals to get back.
1: So the question now, though, Anne, is, are you aware of the fear that's right here and yeah. now?
2: Definitely.
1: Good, so just sit with that. Yeah. Instead of telling yourself stories about it, yeah. just see if you can make peace with the fear that's come up or the disorientation or whatever that experience that you're coming out of. Yeah. Just look at that because you have the capacity to include that too. Yeah, yeah, this too, this uneasiness, this whatever that you're experiencing right now. Look, I can, I can say yes to that too. I can make space for that too. Because that's the empowerment of the practice, the liberation of the practice is we don't have to be afraid of whatever the mind creates, including the mind creating the idea that the body is a collection of parts. Like I said, it's not reality. It's just corrective medicine. Right? That's all it is. We imagine the body as a, you know, a bunch of parts, not as, well, oh, that's the truth and this is wrong. But the fixation we have about the collection all wrapped together in skin, is not healthy. It's not useful. So we need to correct the attachment. It's not that having the sense of the body as a whole is wrong, but grasping it as some ultimate truth is uh, heavy and stressful and makes us less functional in life. So we loosen the screws by cultivating, taking the medicine, which is cultivating this other view. And we actually don't want to leave that view. We don't want to sort of put it all back together. We want to remember that both are true. We want to live with that all the time. Same with decay. It's like we want to feel the vitality and strength and health of the body and know it's going to decay and fall apart at the same time. And it actually makes the strength and vitality that we have in moments in our life all the more uh, precious and, and we care for it in a way, knowing that it's this ephemeral thing that it will change, that we'll get sick, and that someday we'll die. And the body won't be the body that we ima- that we know it as now.
2: But I was visiting with a dying man who's now dead,
1: and I was
2: I was feeling like I was having too much death energy. I was starting to change. And I, I talked to somebody, and he said, well, it's that you're too much porous or too morphic and that you should... Um, that you have to really come back into your body before you move, before you leave the bedside. You have
1: to arrive back in your body before uh, exiting. And or I maybe you should not never have left the body. You know what I mean? It's like like maybe we can be there with someone who's dying or who's dead or be there at any moment of our life, but not leave the body. See, this is the thing about a mindfulness. We're... <clears throat> We're not trying to have an out-of-body experience. We're trying to have an in-the-body experience, an in-the-moment experience, not go somewhere else. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, Tom. Well, been times in the past, I've, uh, I've asked
0: you how to orient myself. Um, my, my mom, she's getting older. I'm thinking about these sorts of things. of a guy that I know recently found out that you may have prostate cancer, and there's, there's a whole lot that goes on at the end. You know, see the lot that goes on. Um, you know, just reflection on your own passing and your own decay. And, you know, I, I get that it's sort of um, selfish. It's just like, you, know, like, you know, getting cancer sort of makes me uncomfortable. It says, I think it's just kind of how you warn yourself. But I want to be... You, know, you want to say something. And I realized that wanting to say something seems
1: like what's the right thing to say. Well, sometimes there's, there's nothing to be able to you can say. Just to be there. To be present. be present. Yeah. Um. And you can even say that. You know, some of what you've just said might be useful, like, to tell the person... That, uh, I don't know what to say, and that you really want to be useful, you know, and that, uh, that your cancer makes me uncomfortable. You know, not necessarily in that words, but that it's, uh, this is hard for me. Because it's normalizing that person's experience, because it's probably hard for them too, and they probably don't know what to say. You know, and so, What you can do is model being really honest with the range of your experience, because your experience is probably a lot of different things. And a lot of times, because we have a strong sense of self, we think we should just have one experience about this person's cancer. Like, this is how I'm doing with this person's cancer. But the reality is we have a lot of different experiences in relationship to that person's cancer. And that person is probably having a lot of different experiences in different moments with their cancer, too. So to just be honest and basically modeling being honest and modeling being mindful or willing to see clearly what's going on. And then the last thing is to model not being afraid of that person's fear or suffering. Because it's very easy for our, when we're the one who's sick, you know, to be afraid of our fear or afraid of losing it, afraid of whatever. And so part of what compassion is like, that willingness to be close to their suffering, is a willingness like, uh, this is intense, I don't like this, which is honest, right? We don't like the fact that our friend is sick. But I'm not gonna, I'm gonna practice not being afraid of this yucky feeling. Like, the feeling I'm gonna be, that it's contagious. I mean, we know intellectually it's not contagious, but there's some sense like, if this could happen to them, it could happen to me. And so, we're working with the discomfort. We're practicing not backing away from the discomfort, which is really good modeling. That's what that person needs. They need support of not disconnecting from their difficult situation, which is what <clears throat> we sometimes maybe even have to do, but definitely what we do sometimes when things are really overwhelming is we disconnect. But the less of that we, ha- we have to do, the better. It's better when we're really in a difficult place to be in that difficult place, because being in denial is just layering on more difficulty on top of what's already difficult. It's understandable. When we're totally overwhelmed, sometimes the only thing we can do, even though it's not perfectly skillful, and maybe the best we can do is to disconnect. But we don't want that to be our only strategy. And ultimately, we want to use it less and less. So we can model that for them, like not disconnecting, just being real. Which And sometimes being real means we don't know what to say. So we're just here in that, relaxing with that experience of not knowing what to say. But we're relaxing with it. We're not assuming it's wrong to not know what to say or that it's bad to not know what to say, which is there with the person knowing that we don't know what to say. I'm in that experience a lot. I mean, you know, partly I operate as a minister, even though, you know, Buddhism, we don't really have ministers, but being a Dharma teacher, you know, I, I show up for people sometimes when they're sick or something's going on in their families. And, uh, you know, a lot of times I don't know what to say but I'm better and better at being really relaxed. And then sometimes I end up saying things that I never would have thought of saying, you know. Or it doesn't matter what I say, but I'm just the fact that I'm not afraid, I'm practicing not being afraid of whatever's going on. I'm practicing being relaxed and intimate with whatever's going on can be useful. And at the very least, I'm practicing not suffering in that experience. Well this this um this kind of moment, really
0: I mean I, was, I, was really too, I mean I by the way it too, got to do and there's any number of times you can run the math on uh, all that like but be more comfy that I don't know you like can be hanging out with angels and it's gonna be all somewhere else. I mean this that I like, the, the whole birth of uh the afterlife and what that all these things that all
1: that stuff, just born of this, um, this just the exact opposite of what we were kind of talking about tonight, like being with it. Like, well, not being with it. Right. Right, right but, but sometimes being with it can, um, can be basically someone creating hell for themselves because they think this is how it is, or I'm going to, you know, that this. Because they have the pain, and they have the fear of the unknown, and they can create monsters out of that, the combination of that, especially when they get tired and exhausted from being with the pain for so long. So sometimes you need to use stories that that kind of show up the relativeness of their other stories, like this is bad and getting worse, and then I'm going to die, and I don't want to... So, like, having a story that, I mean, if somebody was a longtime practitioner, the story I might offer them is something like, uh, well, you know, the body's definitely falling apart, you know. And, like, I, one of my best friends died in the fall, uh, our office manager for many, many years, and dear friend, Debbie Norgard, and, uh, you know, she's a really wise woman. And, uh, I saw her a few hours before she died. And, uh, you know, I said, you know, it's probably going to happen pretty soon. And she, she was still talking at that point, just not much, but she said something like, yeah. And, uh, and so what I say to someone like that is, uh, one I, like, that it's going to happen soon and that we don't, like, uh, like, just to keep the mind open about what that is. Like, the body's falling apart, but the mind isn't falling apart, you know. And they really get the difference between the trajectory of the body, which, you know, at the time near death, I mean, it's very clearly falling apart. That it starts to get cold, the breathing is labored, you know. There's just so many... It's just like so clearly... So clear, rather, that the body is just breaking down. It's functioning, is breaking down. But that's not necessarily the case with the mind at all. You know, unless there's the mind's heavily drugged. But even then, so that to really get the difference, so I'm not saying that there's heaven or next life, or but just that there are two distinct trajectories. The body's got one trajectory, and the mind stream, or whatever you want to call that, is a different trajectory. And it's not falling apart. It's not getting weaker. It's just what it is. And to to for them to see that can be really useful. Because because there's such a habit of identifying with the body as self, it's very frightening if we have that strong conviction of I'm the body, the body is me, I'm in the body, or whatever uh particular angle on that identification with the body we have in that moment. Then it's really frightening to see what's going on with the body. Or to look in the mirror and see the wrinkles or see whatever we see. But if we see well the body is here and it has its own trajectory and I've always known that and we've reflected on the body over and over again, as the Buddha suggests, and we don't take the body itself, then it's then that whole dying process is different. So that's that's one thing we can do if it's appropriate, without making up fanciful stories of whatever. And I'm not saying there isn't heaven, or there isn't hell. I'm just saying, let's be skillful about stories. Like, what story might help the person be more free, more skillful in dealing with whatever they're dealing with? And the Buddha was very pragmatic. He wasn't that interested in telling people what the absolute truth was. You know, metaphysically, this is the way that it is. That's not what the Buddha did. He was offering pragmatic, skillful means for managing the experience of having a body and mind and realizing a state of freedom in that experience of having a body and mind. Because that's what we're interested in. Thanks for bringing that up, Tom. We need to leave it here. It's 8.30. So we'll just take a few seconds to take a couple breaths together in silence. (laughs) The silence can be a free fall. The mind doesn't need to cling, or hold. And appreciating the guidance that we get from the Buddha and all of our spiritual ancestors, all the women and men, they had busy lives just like we do. They took up the practice, of being more awake, more mindful in life, developed wisdom and compassion, and we we can be the grateful recipients of this stream of wisdom and compassion. So now it's our turn and our busy lives to do the best we can. To wake up, to be more mindful, see things as they are, and to be part of the causes and conditions leading more peace and ease and freedom from suffering. So may this be so for us all.
0: This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.
1: Thank you for listening.